Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Actually, that's a joke. It's chapter 1. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. Philippians 1. We're beginning our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. And it's a verse-by-verse exposition of Philippians, hence why we need to begin at chapter 1 and not chapter 2. But this book excites me and encourages me immensely, and I trust it will do the same for you. And I know one of the common questions when we switch to something new like this is, why? why? Why this book over that book? Why Philippians? I mean, after all, in the last uh, couple months, we've seen the ending of a series in Genesis, and then a brief survey of the ordinances, and so how did we end up at Philippians? Well, it's a pretty scientific method, the way that we determine, like, one thing to the next, and basically it consists of, like, taking your Bible and, like, holding it up on its spine and then just seeing where it falls. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't do that either. Uh, we actually think through, okay, well, what does the congregation need in this season? Uh, what would be best for the church as a whole next? And it's kind of challenging because you can't just think of any individuals. You actually have to think of the church as a whole. And so there were two reasons why we thought that you would need to grasp Philippians now in this season as we convene together again more broadly as a church. First, grasping Philippians advances the mission of the church. When you have a grasp on this book, it will help you advance the mission of the church. You know well that Faith Bible Church exists to raise up generations of God-glorifying Christ followers. That's what we want to see. You, those that you influence, and those who have yet to hear. We want them to be followers of Christ, which is expressed in their delighting in Christ, serving His people, and also advancing the truth and love to those who don't know it. And that is what we should be doing in this particular season, of course, and yet it's been, frankly, kind of tough to do that. I mean, you just take a snapshot of the last six months, and, and you'll know that staying focused on what really matters has been a difficulty, to say the least. And yet this book will mobilize us for the mission that God has given us. Pandemics and politics notwithstanding, we still have a job to do. And I think it's time for us to get back to it. And so Philippians will help us with this. In this particular epistle, Paul will reiterate our role as partners, as comrades, as sharers in the mission of Christ. Hence why we pick the title, the fellowship of the gospel. Yes, there is an intentional allusion to Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, for those of you who would wonder. But we're not ripping off Tolkien. Tolkien ripped off the scriptures. The word fellowship actually comes from this particular book, chapter 1, verse 27, which may be the main theme of the entire book, if you summed it up into one, is that we're together for the gospel. We're in partnership with one another. I mean, the gospel is the prevalent theme of this book overall. 
uh, Gordon Fee did the math on this and said that percentage-wise, as you take it per 100 words, the word gospel is mentioned more in this book than any other in the New Testament. And so, he not only mentions the gospel, but he mentions our togetherness in it, our partnership as we work together for it, and you'll see this throughout. And so in a world that tries to force us into alternate fellowships, whether it be things like social issues, uh, the politically conservative versus the politically progressive, the, the black, the white, or the other, the, these labels that, that society tries to place upon us, the scriptures will remind us, no, we were a different label, and we have a different job, and that is for the advance of the gospel. So, it will help us advance the mission. There's a second reason why we picked this book in particular, and that is because it will assure our hearts in Christ. It advances the mission, and it also assures our hearts. We realize that these months have been discouraging for many of you, and so we thought it would be good to draw strength from a trusted and time-tested resource. I say trusted and time-tested because if you think about the number of favorite verses or life verses that come from the book of Philippians, what you have is a veritable greatest hits soundtrack. I mean, just listen to some of the most famous verses in all of the scriptures and note their source. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, 1-6. But for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, 121. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, 2, 12, and 13. Or what about this one? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, 3, 13 to 14. Or this one. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, chapter 4, verse 4. Or, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Or, chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. And then, chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's the greatest hits. And it's all in one book. It, it will encourage our hearts, and, and we need that. I mean, Paul, both in his example and in his exhortations, is reminding us through this that joy does not come from circumstances. It comes from Christ. And let's be clear on something. If you were to type into uh, Google, I did it this week, uh, Philippians Sermon Series, this is what will come up. I mean, hundreds of titles of sermon series that say something like this, how to have joy, how to have joy, the book of joy, the epistle of joy. Well, friends, this book is not about how to have joy, but it is written with a tone of joy. <laughs> it's about advancing the gospel together, but when we're doing this together, here's the ironic thing, when we're not focusing on our own joy, but we're actually focusing on the mission that God has given us in the person of Christ, we have joy. And so some 12 times in this book, Paul will reference joy, whether it be his own while he's sitting in a prison cell, or their own as they're facing persecution. So it can encourage our hearts. To, we need to break those habits of seeking joy in our home, and our job, and our education, and our relationships, and our bank account, and our hobbies. 
And we need our souls enchanted with him alone who can satisfy. And so we need to grasp Philippians. Those are the two main reasons. To help us advance the mission, to help us actually enjoy our Lord. But to do this, to to grasp this book, where should we begin? Not in chapter 2, I assure you. (laughs) We should begin in the beginning. We're going to begin in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So look there with me in your copy of God's Word, and let's read this together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in these verses, that could seem like a throwaway. Like, oh, let's get on to the real part of the book. (laughs) We actually have uh, two indications of Paul's success and satisfaction in the gospel. Like from the very beginning, we're even going to see, I mean, like in the salutation, we're actually going to see... Like some insight into how Paul sees the mission advance and how he enjoys Christ in it. There's two unique features of this little salutation, and I would encourage you to do a little experiment. Look at your copy of God's Word again in those two verses and try to figure out what seems different about it. What makes these two verses different from what you would normally expect the beginning of a letter to read like? I'll give you a minute to do that. What does he seem to be doing with this? Now, admittedly, at first glance, the verse seems kind of unimpressive and unimportant, kind of like the heading of a business letter, right? Like, who actually reads that in detail? You know, it's got the address, it's got the name, it's got all the stuff you expect to see. These are just the normal elements of what's there, the phone number, whatever. But here's what you could do. If you simply compare and contrast this heading with other popular letter headings of the day, you're going to discern or discover what makes this one so unique. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you open what seems to be just another standard business letter, and as you try to skip to the body of the letter as you would typically do, you notice uniquely spiritual contents in the typically waste of space section. You know, the Instead of seeing a standard name followed by a a comma with a title like uh, executive vice president, you instead see the standard name followed by something like slave of God. (laughs) It'd catch your attention. Or instead of a standard business address, could you imagine that if the address just read heaven? (laughs) It would catch your attention. The, The salutation of Paul functioned in this way. It followed the standard form of the day. There was a form of the day. Normally, you would mention the writer, and then the addressee, and then there would be a greeting. But in contrast with most ancient letters, Paul's standard form has come under some unique Christian influence. Now, the the question you need to be asking me (laughs) at this point is, well, Justin, how in the world do you know what the standard letters of the day look like? Great question. You know, I do not know personally. I do not have a copy of them in my office. 
But thankfully, archaeologists and historians have been mining this particular century of history for years. And guess what? They have come up with a boatload. There's, in fact, there are so many extant letters of this period, entire doctoral dissertations have been written on them. In fact, in recent years, they've actually discovered two different manuals on letter writing in the first century. In a pre-computer world, letter writing was something of an art form. It, it was something that was important. And so there was formal training that actually took place in these manuals. You even discover that the sociologists of the time, the researchers of the time, would divide letters up into certain categories. <laughs> Sometimes we think that like we're the best thing going on technologically, but truth is, friends, a lot of stuff has been around for a lot of time. The difference between a business letter and a personal letter has been in operation for a really long time. And what we have here by the ancient standards or category would be that of a friendly letter of correspondence. It's not a formal business letter. Paul writes to them as friends, and it fits the typical format. And here's how a friendly letter always begins. From, to, greeting. And that's how we're going to follow it today. And I want you to note what's distinct about his from what's distinct about his two, and what's distinct about the greeting. Does that make sense? I think as you look at it closely, just for those of you who like to take notes, you're going to notice two distinctives, two themes that pervade this standard salutation, or spiritual salutation, if you will. The, the first distinctive of this particular salutation is that it established their connection in Christ. It established their connection with one another in Christ. Hopefully you noticed that. And then the second thing is that it expresses kindness from God in Christ. It expresses kindness from God in Christ. Let's just note this first one. Let's look at the from line. Just Paul and Timothy. All right, let's take it exactly like they would read it. Uh, of course, now you need to like, find this interesting. They actually would disclose at the beginning of a letter who was writing. Now, for all of our advances in technology, I think letter writing has gone backwards. Because for some reason, we don't put who a letter is from until the very bottom. <laughs> so like, I find myself doing this all the time. I'll write somebody an email. Hi, so-and-so. And if I don't know them, I have to put at the beginning... Hey, my name is Justin Harris. I'm the pastor of Faith Bible Church, and I'm trying to explain to them why I know them. That's like that, that's in a whole paragraph. Because for some reason, we wait till the very end to put the signature that says Justin Harris, senior pastor of Faith Bible Church, email address. <laughs> now, so they had better technology than we did. I like their layout much better. So to start off with, like before they ever read the thing, they know who it's coming from. And here we know that it's coming from Paul. We just read in Acts chapter 16 that this is the founding father of the church, if you will, humanly speaking. I mean, like, he was beaten for these folks. He preached the gospel to them. He was persecuted on their behalf. I mean, they know the apostle Paul. They look up to him with much respect. And they also know and are aware, as you'll find out reading the rest of the letter, that right now he is actually writing to them from a Roman prison. So they know of Paul. And then he mentions Timothy. And for those of you who don't know Timothy, it was Paul's protege. It was his assistant. And in this case, Timothy is serving in kind of an executive assistant role to the apostle. And so his name gets added to the letter as well. 
Now, the first person singular pronoun written throughout the letter shows us that it's ultimately coming from Paul. But Timothy was there to help offer guidance, correction, to help him remember names or whatever. He wants Timothy to know, I mean, he wants the people to know that Timothy's with him because later on he's going to send Timothy to be with him. So he introduces Timothy. So you've got Paul, you've got Timothy, and, and what's interesting here is the way that Paul himself will, will actually modify, like the, the little comma, and then the way that he describes himself. I mean, if you were getting this letter, as someone in the Philippian church, it'd probably have about the same impression of you for you that a letter from Dan Cathy would have on a Chick-fil-A employee. This guy is large and in charge. He's the one that has actually got this thing off the ground. And so you would expect a title to read, Paul and Timothy, missionary par excellence. Paul and Timothy, executives in Christ. Paul and Timothy, missionary extraordinaire. And yet what we have is Paul and Timothy, slaves in Christ. Notice how he establishes their connection. It's not on the basis of authority, but it's actually on the basis of mutuality in Christ. In Christ, slaves of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ is what it's rendered there. I don't have to admit, there's a little bit of a tempest in a teapot when it comes to the particular word servant translated here that we see in the scriptures. Some of you... You've never heard this debate before, but others of you see this word servant, you know that it's the Greek word doulos or douloi in the plural here, and you think that it should in every case be translated slave. I think, friends, for us to best understand the word servant as it's translated here, we need to do a little Goldilocksing. I made up a word. Yes, I did. Goldilocksing. You remember Goldilocks. She was trying to discern the middle way, right? Not too hot, not too cold, not too firm, not too soft. Something in the middle. Well, we need to Goldilocks this verb a little bit, I mean this noun a little bit, because too often we look at it as it's translated servant, and we think like, oh yeah, he's just saying that he's an employee of Jesus, no big deal. <laughs> like he kind of works for, for, for Jesus, and we know how uh, service goes, you know, like if you don't like it, you, you know, you move on to a new job. In fact, this little misnomer about service just merely being employment is, is actually evidenced in the way that we read the book of Matthew, for example. I'll give you just one little picture of this. Remember the saying where Jesus says, no man can serve two masters? <laughs> for either he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. Traditionally, we read that and we're like, what's the big deal? I work at Burger King and McDonald's. You know, like, why can't they work for two people? And what he's actually trying to communicate is no, no man can actually be a slave to two masters. <laughs> it is something more. Service doesn't equal employment. It is something more than that. Paul is not conveying that he happens to be a trusted employee of Jesus. He is saying that he is owned by him. He and Timothy are Jesus' property. It is a strong word. But it's not as negative of a word as slave. It's not as negative as, of a word as slave. Now, let me be clear about this. If I was going to literally interpret it into English for that time and that culture, I would use the word slave. They thought of themselves as slaves. 
But because of what happened in the United States in the 19th and 18th century, we only have a negative view of slavery. We think of antebellum slavery in the South, we think of the, the diary of Frederick Douglass, and we immediately think, oh no, slavery, this is horrible, this is degrading. And that was, that was. But slavery in the ancient world wasn't as heinous as what was happening in the 19th and 18th century United States. It was a socioeconomic class, slaves. It would be something very akin to, it's hard to make parallels, but it'd be something very akin to our middle class, actually. It meant that, indeed, you were owned by another. Let's just be clear about that. But it also meant that you were under the care and protection of another. A slave in that particular culture could actually work themselves out of slavery. They could buy their freedom. But here's what would normally happen. They could do it, but they would choose to stay under the protection and sponsorship of an owner because it was easier to be provided for under someone else's care than to try to care for themselves. So being a slave was a good thing depending on who you were a slave of. And this is exactly the sense that Paul is communicating here. He's saying, I am owned by Jesus. There is a sense of humility in this. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, although he could. He is humbling himself, and he is modeling something very important that he's going to disclose in chapter 2 for them. But he's not just saying, I'm just a slave. He says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I am a slave of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God who would come and provide rescue for his people, who is Jesus, his human name, his title Christ, his name Jesus. I belong to him, and because of that, I have some status. (laughs) And that phrase, the servant of God, or the, the slave of God, the bond slave of God, was one that was very popular among the Philippians by this time, because think about it, they've been a church for about 10 years, And they know, by this point, the Old Testament. And they've seen those descriptions of those unique men who were representing God and communicating his word to the people called the servants of God. Men like Jonah, men like Moses, men like David, all called servants of God. So Paul is being humble, but Paul is also positing authority. And this, friends, just as a little time out, is the paradox of Christian greatness. This is exactly in line with the way that Jesus, the Lord of the church, would teach it. Those who would be the greatest will be what? The servant of all. And so here in this paradoxical way, Paul is establishing this identity. He's letting them know who this is from. And they are not just executives ruling over them. They are partners with them because they belong to Christ. And Paul knows that the Philippians belong to Christ as well. That's exactly what he wants us to see and to understand. It was Mark Twain who famously quipped that the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a small matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. (laughs) Friends, this isn't just the right word. It is the right phrase. I mean, he Like, he swims this narrow channel perfectly to show his authority, but also his humility, and it all is possible in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who has made him this. So, that is the from line. Now, he's made a modification. Nobody ever introduced themselves as a slave of Christ in their typical business letter or friendly letter, but here, that's what Paul does. Now, notice the two. Who is this written to? 
Well, notice how he maintains this connection in Christ in the two line, the B section of the verse, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, again, Paul Paul follows the standard form of the day. He's disclosing who he's writing to, and he's not merely writing, this is what I want you to catch, he's not merely writing to the Philippians. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The the geographical locale, by the way, is like the least of his concerns. What what he's concerned about is saints in Christ Jesus, and it's like he adds, oh yeah, but those who are at Philippi, the ones who are in this particular region. But you need to know something. He is being even hyper-intentional here because the Philippians, of all people, would have had great reason to be proud of their city, their name, their status and association with Rome through Philippi. Here's some of that background information that kind of will serve you through the rest of the book, but it shows itself appropriately here. The citizens of Philippi had great reason to be proud of their city. Even the name Philippi came from the father of Alexander the Great. When he conquered the city, he named it after his father. And so it has this unique heritage going back some 400 years where it was kind of claimed by Rome as a special city. Culturally, it was significant because it was on the made train route, a trade route of the day, the Via Ignatia. And so Rome sat, I mean, excuse me, Philippi sat right on this little connector city between Rome and Istanbul. And so it was naturally a place for trade. Another thing that made it extremely interesting to the Romans who conquered it was the fact that there were gold mines prevalent around. So it was a wealthy city. It was a culturally important city. But the biggest thing that would cause pride in their name was the history of the city. Because you needed to know who lived there. Now, I'm not a huge um, ancient history guy. I I read a lot of it because of the Bible, but I mean, it doesn't come to me naturally. But you you could remember maybe the historical significance of Philippi by thinking of uh, Shakespeare. The reason I reference Shakespeare here is because Shakespeare was the one that really popularized the plight of Julius Caesar. You remember Etu Brute? Right? Where, where he is betrayed by Brutus. And what you really need to remember is that this is a real historical event. The reason I give Shakespeare the credit is because we would not know about that unless it was a play. <laughs> and yet it was a play. And what that little incident sparked when Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brutus, was actually a civil war within Rome. And guess what? That thing grew and grew and grew, and it was in Philippi in particular where the assassins of Julius Caesar and his vindicators would clash in the biggest battle in Roman history. And Caesar would be avenged. Uh, It would be uh, Mark Antony and Octavian who would be the the winners of the day. And because of that huge climactic battle, here's what happened. A reward went out because Rome was already packed full. And they said to the guys that fought valiantly in Philippi at that time, here, we're going to make this an official Roman colony. It's going to be an outpost. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to let you guys retire here. 
And so Philippi actually became a, a retirement community for some of the veterans of one of these most famous battles in all of Roman history. And it was, in effect, stamped a Roman city. In fact, it's in Greece, if you do your geography right, but they spoke Latin, they used Roman circulation or coinage, and they dressed like Rome. I mean, what, what Reno is to Vegas, Philippi was to Rome. It was just a little microcosm of the big stuff that was happening somewhere else. And so these guys, the guys that populated the city, and it was hundreds of them, like they had a, a nationalism, a patriotism about them where they bled Roman. We talk about people bleeding red, white, and blue. These guys were first and foremost proud of the fact that they were Romans, that they were Philippians. In fact, a few years later, there would be one final battle in which Octavian would battle Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and you remember that from history as well. Interesting story, but that didn't happen in Philippi. It happened a couple hundred miles away, but guess what? Because it was such a significant battle, do you know what was offered to the victors of that particular battle? You get to live in Philippi. So this whole place was filled with war heroes. And we're talking only 100 years previous. So now we're like in the 60s, and that happened back in B.C. 40. I mean, you're looking 100, 120 years. It's their great-grandkids, their grandkids who are living here at this particular time. And needless to say, nationalism is at an all-time high. Like their pride in their city is like up here. And you know how Paul addresses them? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who happened to live in Philippi. You know what you, their primary identity would be? Saints in Christ. You should hear the word saint and be disturbed. Because some of us have had so much exposure uh, to Roman Catholicism that we think of the word saint as something that is elite, something that the church does to someone. Uh, friends, let me be really clear on this. Christ, Jesus, has made you a saint, church notwithstanding. <laughs> but those, those people who were so venerated by, by Rome, and so, like held aloft as something very special, like God is actually saying that in Christ, that is you. You have been made a saint. You are a holy one in Christ. That is your primary identity. It's a specific allusion back to the Old Testament where on two different occasions, and other times, but two different occasions primarily, God told his people, the nation of Israel, that they, listen to this, should be holy and set apart unto him. He never called them holy. He said, you should be holy. That's the old covenant. And yet in the new covenant, under Christ, in Christ, more specifically, something special has taken place. Now, he doesn't say you just should be holy. He says, you are holy. You are God's special, holy people. You represent him in a unique way. This is our identity together. We're making this connection. We're establishing the connection. And it isn't like uh, patron-client. It isn't employer-employee. It isn't uh, business owner and customer. It is truly slave in Christ to saint in Christ. The connection is in Christ. He wants them at the very outset of this letter to see themselves interpersonally connected in Christ himself. 
And friends, I want to say this and make it crystal clear for those who may be visiting, those who do not yet know, the only way you will ever be made holy and acceptable by God Almighty is through the work of Christ alone. He is the one that makes us holy. He has absorbed our sin on the cross. It's been fully satisfied and paid for through his suffering and atoning death, and his resurrection provides the life that we need to live said holiness from day to day, and it ensures that he will come back and keep us reserved as his special people forevermore. It only happens through and in Christ. That's our identity. And I don't want to read too much into the salutation of a letter, but friends, I would encourage you to think of this kind of practically for a moment. This is for us. That place, Philippi, was not their identity. Their position in Christ was. Uh, Friends, as, as you are so concerned, rightfully so, about the state of this country, and about where it's headed, and about an election season. Can, can I just encourage you with something? Um, th- this place, the United States of America, is not your identity. Your identity is actually a saint of God in Christ. And you happen to live here. So that means you should care, indeed, what happens in this world, but only insofar as it affects your primary status of being one in Christ. Why does this matter? Well, identity, friends, impacts reality. Identity impacts reality. Another way to say this is beliefs impact behavior. We will act in accordance with who we most deeply believe ourselves to be. May I illustrate that for you? Do you ever say stuff like this? I'm not, it's an I am statement, I'm not a math person. So as soon as somebody says, I'm not a math person, you know what they do? They shy away from any, like, engagement with math whatsoever. Oh, we're going to let the numbers people handle that, you know. Or, I am not a runner. That's me. I'm not a runner. So that means anytime somebody talks about running, I laugh. Like, <laughs> uh, I can't believe you do that. You know, it's, it's, it's a demeaning thing. Um, if you are, God bless you. But that's not me. And you're not, I mean, I do run from time to time, but it is like, it is against my nature. In my little exercise circuit, that is the one thing I'm always looking to skip. Because I see it, I see myself as not a runner. It's identity. Identity impacts uh, behavior and implementation. Here's one, or somebody says, I'm a reader. I'm a reader, or I'm not a reader. I've seen that with many of you. I try to give away a book to some of you guys, and you're like, no, no thank you. Like I offered you a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a reader. Well, you won't even take a book from me because you're like, oh, it's just my identity. You don't know who I am. I'm not a reader. It, it works positively. It works positively. If somebody says, I'm a huge football fan, well, what does that mean for them typically in August and September and October? <laughs> well, their whole calendar will change. Or if somebody says, I'm a people person, what does that mean? They're looking to get together with other people. Or uh, one of my more favorite ones, I'm a coffee snob. If somebody says, I'm a coffee snob, I'm like, oh, yes, we're going to get along. I like you, you know, like, but there's these certain people who are like, you better not give me Charbucks. I'm not drinking that stuff. I want like the, the expensive stuff, the nice stuff, you know, I mean, and that's just uh, it's identity. Identity impacts behavior. Now, with, with that in mind, let's be clear on something. We must gain clarity on our primary identity. 
because the strongest sense of identity will win. Friends, none of you are just a runner or just a reader. Or, I mean, like, we all wear different hats. These things come in conflict with one another, and here's the deal. Whatever you see as most fundamental to yourself will rise to the top. What do you do to consider? This is a thought experiment. Consider the practical impacts of someone who views themselves as more of a student than an athlete. You know, you can be a student athlete, <laughs> and those don't necessarily work against one another, but sometimes they conflict, right? Well, what will happen for the student athlete who views himself as more of a student? It gets down to crunch time, it's exam time, who cares if there's more games going on? I am more of a student, therefore, the athletics is going to have to be put on hold. Or the person who views themselves as more of an athlete than a student. Which one's going to prevail to the top? Well, the athletics, the homework's going to have to go on hold. This is an easy thing to follow. Uh, let's imagine another one. How would you say um, this would ha- work out? Someone who views himself as more of a business owner than a father. What are the impacts of that? If he sees himself as more of a business owner than a father. Well, his kids will probably regularly be neglected. He is a father, too. But when the two come in conflict with one another, he's actually going to spend more time on the fatherhood expression of things. But what if he views himself as more of a father than a business owner? Well, guess what? The business sometimes is going to fall behind, but he has a great relationship with his kids. These identities compete. Now, I'll give you one more. Envision someone who views themselves as more in Philippi, or, let's modernize it, more in the United States than in Christ. How would it affect their behavior? Fill in the blanks for yourself. I would encourage you to think of it the other way around. What would it look like for someone to be more in Christ than in Philippi or in the U.S.? There will be times, friends, and this is all I'm trying to warn you of, where your local identity will come in conflict conflict with your heavenly identity, and you're going to have to make a choice. And how do you do it? You, by faith, accept what Christ Jesus has already done for you. He has made you a holy one in himself. That is who you are. That is what he calls you. That is how you live. And then he adds this. Notice it in your scriptures. With the overseers and the deacons. The overseers and the deacons. Now, Paul doesn't specifically call the the Philippians a church, but he doesn't have to. If you go back and read like 1 Corinthians 1, verses uh, 1 and 2, for example, you'll see that church and a group of saints just means the same thing to Paul. If they're in a specific location, more than likely they were gathering together as a church. Just listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 here. It says, The church of God which is at Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Do you notice that? <laughs> The church of God in Corinth is the same thing as the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes Paul will specifically call the group of people he's writing to a church. Sometimes he specifically calls them the saints. But we all know that saints organize themselves in gatherings like this. (laughs) And what makes this so clear is that he mentions officers here. You don't have like free-roaming deacons and elders out there, you know, (laughs) Like, the, the authority of me as an overseer, like, extends to this flock, this congregation, this church. I can't, like, show up at First Baptist and say, hey, guys, I think you need to be doing this about COVID-19. It just doesn't work that way. I don't have any authority over there. He is actually calling out a specific group of people. And it's really great. Just for the sake of 
polity and clarity. Let's just review what these are. Overseers, deacons. Overseers, and, and the King James is bishops. <laughs> it's the, the Greek word is episkopos. It just means one who sees over. If I were to give it like its best like English transliteration, it would be supervisor. Visor, someone who sees super, over, and above. So this is someone who oversees things, particularly in the New Testament church. God entrusted the responsibility of oversight to a particular group of men who it demonstrated some type of exemplary character, Christ-like character, and showed some competency in the word. And so he is specifically, in addition to all the saints, notice this, he's, he's talking about everybody, but hey, also among you, there's overseers. I want you guys to take special note to what I'm about to say, and he mentions the deacons. Deacon is an office in the church. It is not elders, by the way. If you're coming from a, like a Southern Baptist kind of background, it'd be easy to think that the deacons are the ones that oversee the church. No, that's not their role. They're official servants within the church. They help organize, administrate, facilitate. And so here, even at this church, we have overseers, we have deacons, and we have saints. <laughs> Th those are the three roles in a church, by the way. Like, if you want to know where you fit on the team, well, all of us are saints. Some of us are deacons. Some of us are overseers. But why does he call them out? Because, this is important for you if you're an overseer or a deacon here today, you have a special responsibility to ensure that the contents of this letter are fleshed out within the life of the congregation. But don't miss this. He is still primarily referring to all the saints in Philippi. All of those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a team effort. So the connection here is established in Christ and there's a second way in which Christ is infused into this salutation. There's a second distinctive of this opening, and that is he expresses kindness from Christ. And this will go by a lot quicker. He expresses kindness from Christ. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now that he's got the essentials out of the way, the from, they always did that in a friendly letter. The to, they always did that in a friendly letter. And then the salutation official. Like, they always did this in an official letter. And, and you know what the normal greeting in that culture was? Karain. Karain. That should mean a whole heap to you. I'm just kidding. Karain means to rejoice. It just means to rejoice. Uh, but it, it didn't, like, literally mean to rejoice. They weren't going to each other saying, to rejoice, to rejoice. <laughs> it just, it took on the effect. It was literally to rejoice, but it just took on the effect of, like, hey, Conveying goodwill to someone, hoping that they were rejoicing, hoping that they were happy. This is the way that greetings work in our own culture. Well, not our own culture, but um, thankfully, I mean, frankly, I don't know what the word high means or like how we got there. <laughs> I know we say that, <laughs> but I do know what aloha means. <laughs> it's a friendly wish of well-being from one person to another person. And so also, I mean, different cultures can practice this in different ways. I'm thinking of um, the Australians who still say to one another, good day, good day. What are they doing? They're wishing that someone else is having a good day. And so in this culture, what you would have expected to hear, to see here is Karain, Karain. And yet Paul will take that little greeting, he's actually going to change it. He's going to change it from that little infinitive that everybody would have expected, and he's going to infuse the messianic into the mundane, because he's going to say, charis, grace, grace. <laughs> grace was a loaded 
theological concept for believers. It was that which they knew that they did not deserve from God himself. Grace and then peace. Grace and peace. Peace was your Jewish expression of salutation. Uh, you would recognize its Hebrew cognate, shalom, right? Shalom. Uh, or, or even in uh, Arabic, salam. It, it, it's saying to you, like, Peace to you. And peace just doesn't mean, in the Hebrew mind, cessation of hostilities. It means health. It means wholeness. And so Paul, he says that he adds a Jewish greeting to a Greek audience, and he changes it to grace, and by the time you get around to it, you're going to see something significant theologically. Grace and peace to you. Where does this, how does this happen, and how do they relate? Because of God's grace because of his unmerited favor and kindness toward us, we now experience his peace, his shalom, his wholeness. While he is writing from a Roman prison, he can still express peace to them because he knows God's grace. And he's fleshed this out in chapter 4. But it's not just the order, but I want you to note its origin. Its origin. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a dual source for this grace that gives us peace, and the first is God the Father himself. And this is important for you to remember. The staff and I were just discussing this week in uh, one of our book discussions that, that we have this tendency to think sometimes that of the persons of the Trinity, Jesus is the nice one and the Father was the just one. You know, like, if Jesus wouldn't have died for us, man, the Father would still, like, hate our guts. That's kind of like the, the mindset that some people have. Good thing Jesus stepped in, you know, because the Father really had it out for us. He was the just one. But friends, you need to understand that Jesus didn't die <laughs> to rescue you from the Father. The Father wanted to provide rescue, and so he sent Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The favor began with the father and was expressed in the son. God the father, our father, he wanted to give to us and pour out to us grace so that we could enjoy peace. And that is experienced in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of just saying Christ Jesus here, he adds the title Lord, making a strong political statement in the day, because in that particular time, you could have been arrested for saying that anyone other than Caesar was Lord. And here, right up front, he says, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the Christ, is Lord, the one who died for his people. And it is from him and from the Father that this grace comes by which we experience peace. This is no standard salutation. This is one saturated in Christ, and this is the tone of what he wants to accomplish in us. Recently, I've been exposed to a, a rather helpful tool. You ever ask someone in a conversation, how are you? <laughs> Hopefully you ask that a lot. Normally, it means hi. <laughs> You're not even asking. <laughs> like, hey, how are you? And you don't really want to know the answer because you just keep walking. You do that to me all the time. I know, I do it to you too. It's mutual. But when you really want to ask somebody how they're doing, like what do you mean by that? Like how do you answer that question meaningfully? Well, a couple of researchers got together and put together this little metric 
uh, for trying to disclose like how someone's really doing. Now, again, this is not authoritative biblical research. This is just a good, helpful tool for you. It's called a peace score. And you just evaluate, I've done it with some of you before, I, you just evaluate a few key areas in your life. You rate them on a scale of 1 to 10, add up the average, and then you can answer numerically how well you're doing. So it works like this. You think of your purpose, like am I doing what the Lord wants me to do or am I not? Your place, like where you live. Uh, your people, like your relationships with people at work and your life. Uh, your provision, like do you have what you need? And then your physical health. Think about it. If any one of those things is like, like in the toilet, like your life is just kind of, you know, like not that great. <laughs> and so you could ask somebody, how are you? What do you mean by that? Well, how's your purpose? How's your people? How's your place? Now, what I like that tool because it's so functional, it's so practical, and yet it can be a tad misleading. Because if you're not theologically informed, you're actually going to think that peace actually comes from your sense of purpose or from where you live or from your relationships with other people or from something like your bank account or your physical health. We need to be careful with that. And yet we all in here would think, man, if all those things were a 10, my life would be perfect. And yet what Paul is going to teach us is that no, only those things in Christ <laughs> are how we can really experience peace. Because after all, friends, who cares if your health is perfect, your relationships seem to be through the roof, you're making us more money than you've ever made in your life, and yet you're isolated from Christ. And yet if you're in Christ, and you don't have all the money that you need, and that your relationships are kind of struggling right now, and you're not really sure what you're doing with your life, what else do you need? This is what Paul is expressing to them. There is peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ experienced by His grace. It comes from there. We're going to hit this harder later, but now just be aware. The peace that is offered us, the encouragement that is offered us is indeed in Christ. Brothers and sisters, what Paul offers here actually transcends purpose, relationships, where you live, how healthy you are, how much money you make, those in Christ can enjoy shalom on account of God's grace made known in Christ. And so, I would encourage you to actually enjoy the grace and peace of Christ. I don't say this to you, friends, as a guilt trip. I say this to you as an opportunity. He's been good to you in Christ, and you can rest in that. Do that peace score. Do it with someone. But do it in Christ and out of Christ and see the difference between the two. So we are who we are in Christ. We enjoy what we enjoy from Christ. Even in this salutation, from the to to the from, all the way to the salutation, there's something distinct about this. And the distinct is not actually a something, it is a someone. <laughs> it is Christ. And so Paul conveys what he conveys to us here and his mission and our sense of purpose and the enjoyment and the peace that we need in this particular season as being enjoyed in Christ. So here's my prayer for us as we partake of the book of Philippians in the week to come. First is that we play better offense together. That we would be able to advance the ball, if you will. That we would be able to advance the gospel in a coordinated effort in Christ. We want people to know Christ through us together in this church. Better offense, but better defense. 
that we'd be able to take care of our own souls and maintain care for one another in Christ. Not just little memes and shortcutted emails that try to give people just a glimmer of hope. No, deep, rich, theological hope that comes from our relationship with Christ. Defense, offense. This is what the introduction in particular in the book as a whole has for us. Now I'm going to conclude today with just three practical suggestions for you benefiting from the book of Philippians. You would normally expect me to give you something very concrete and tangible from whatever verses I preached, but friends, it is the salutation. You can't expect so much from me. (laughs) But let me help you with the book as a whole. Three things that I would encourage you to do. They're going to be practical, but I think it'll help you for maximizing this study in the weeks to come. Read, rehearse, rely, rejoice. Would you consider reading the book of Philippians with me at least once a week? It only takes 15 minutes to read. So by the time the study is over, you literally could have read this 15 or 16 times. If your devotions have been kind of dry of late, you're looking to switch things up, this would be a great way to go. Read. If if even that's too much for you, you could just email the church, and I have the breakdown of the text that we'll be studying. You could just read and study those verses if you'd rather go deeper to know what we're getting to. So read. Second is rehearse Philippians. What I mean by this is uh, I pray that you'd make a weekly commitment to converse this with others to talk about what you're learning in this with others. Here's a great way and an easy way to do this. Now, I know you have small groups for this, and they'll begin in a few weeks, and it'll greatly facilitate it. But here's the shortcut. After the service is over, you could just ask someone, how can I pray for you in light of what we just heard in Philippians? It's that simple. How can I pray for you in light of what we just heard from Philippians? It's a congregation, I mean a conversation starter. Uh, You rehearsing this with other people will help you internalize the truths of this text. Uh, A third thing is that you would rely. What I mean by that is pray, pray, pray. Pray for me that the Lord would just grasp my own heart in this, that I would be affected by this truth, especially when handling verses familiar. (laughs) We need God's help. And then pray for yourself and others, that God would use this in our church. And then finally, rejoice. Uh, the, the corporate worship in the next few weeks is going to be centered on the person of Christ. And my prayer for you is that you come engaged and ready to sing out about the person of Christ because he is our mission and he is our encouragement. It is in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, Help us now as we seek to praise Christ, not only through what we sing, but in how we live. I pray that this congregation in the coming days, Lord, would advance the ball, that we would advance the gospel, that the mission of Christ would be seen and known in this community. And Father, I pray for our encouragement in Christ, Lord, that we would know, Lord, just the the, the peace and the grace that's offered in Him and from the Father. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.